Good morning. Good morning. Well, my name's Seth. Um, I'm the news pastor here, and I've only been here like seven weeks, I think. Uh, maybe eight, but I'm not totally sure about seven. And one of the questions I've been getting a lot is, um, how's it going? You know, people who've been praying for Taylor and I coming to a new church, you kind of go, what's it like being a new place? And it's been like, honestly, a lot better than we expected. <laughs> not, that, not that we expect it to be really bad, but you kind of prepare for the worst and hope for the best, you know? Like, they're all going to be busy and we're going to have no friends. That's kind of like, if you, if you go in with that mentality, it ends up being a lot better than that. So, um, but people have been super welcoming, and so thank you all who have been praying for us to get connected. Um, it's been great to be part of this family, and Taylor and I have really enjoyed um, getting connected to this church. Um, so we're talking about marriage, and so I know that I'm like this young guy up here who's been married three years, and some of you are going like, yeah, right, dude, yeah, you tell me about marriage, I don't know, I don't know who you think you are, but you haven't done what we've done, and so that's kind of, that's why I'm teaching this message, not the other ones, is, um, is um, I'm going to do my very best to paint the picture of what the Bible says uh, about scripture, about, the, about marriage, what the story is, how we find ourselves in it, and what Jesus actually does here, and so a lot of times we'll get questions about marriage as, as humans, people ask you, what do you think about marriage, what do you think about this about marriage, what do you think about that about marriage, and there's always different facets and always different questions, and sometimes it's like the Pharisees did, they're trying to test and trap um, not because they're generally curious, but they're kind of trying to get you trapped. And so one of the things I see here in this passage, what Jesus does is twice, he says, from the beginning. And so rather than kind of appealing to principles or particular values or even pulling verses out of context, what he does is he's reminding them of a story. He says, in the very beginning, um, which in, is literally the word Genesis. In Genesis, it says. And so what Jesus does in his approach of marriage is he's taking a storied approach, meaning he's reminding people of this narrative. And anytime we ask any question about anything, we have to ask ourselves in terms of what story are we looking at. Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher, says this. He says, I can only answer what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part. And so that's what Jesus does here with these Pharisees is they ask him, what's your view on this? And he says, what story are you a part of? From the beginning. And he reminds them of the story that they should have known that they're a part of, but what they were doing is they're pulling things out of context here. And so for all of us, whether we're talking about um, how to tie our shoes, what clothes to wear, where we should go to church, what we do for marriage, any of our views on anything, any ethical question, we have to answer from the basis of the story. And I use the word story here not in terms of like a children's fable, but in terms of like a beginning, a middle, and the end. How did we get here? Where do we come from and where are we going as a universe? And so this story that God gives us in scripture paints a picture of marriage that's from the very beginning. Marriage is on the first page and marriage is on the last page. And so if you think that the Bible doesn't talk about marriage or if you have a low view or a, um, a view of marriage that you think it's not that big of a deal, you can't really have a high view of the Bible and simultaneously have a low view of marriage because the whole Bible is, I'm gonna argue, a story about the marriage of Christ and the church, and our marriages are a picture of that marriage. So what I'm gonna talk about here today is gonna to do three things. First, I'm gonna talk about competing stories. So what are the other stories that are swimming around in our culture? What are the other stories that are competing with us to shape our affection and our view of marriage? Then I'm gonna talk about what does the biblical story actually say, and I'm gonna try and hit a handful of passages of the thousands that I could have picked that help give the shape and the contours of how the story of God ebbs and flows with regards to marriage. And then third, I'm gonna talk about how marriage actually should be changing and shaping our view of the gospel. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna dive in. 
Jesus, I pray for the people in here with happy marriages, people with frustrating marriages, the people who used to have marriages, and the people who've never been married. And I pray that all of us can gather together, hear from your word, learn and be shaped. Pray that we can see more clearly your love of us as your people so that we can better love one another um, as you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first story, so we're going to look at two competing stories and look at a biblical story. The first story I want us to look at is the, what I'm calling the socio-evolutionary story. And this is the kind of the story that is really kind of shaped from this view that it's kind of a naturalistic understanding. So all we are is a series of random evolutionary permutations over the course of our history. And so in this view, um, marriage is a product of humanity's collective evolutionary development. So at some point, five or 6,000 years ago, maybe 10,000 years ago, we said, you know, this whole people kind of mating with everyone randomly isn't very good for our society. We need to establish some structure. So we're going to have we're going to have polygamy. And over time, they said that's crazy. Many wives is too hard. We're going to go to monogamy. And so there's kind of like this evolution from sleeping with whoever you want to to having some wives to having one wife. And so in this view part of our evolutionary development was where marriage came from. And so what this actually ends up meaning is that because, therefore, a prior human society made up this marriage thing, now modern human societies can update what prior human societies made. So if marital norms were produced by past societies, then why not update them by modern societies? We now are so much smarter and things like that, blah, blah, blah. And so what this ends up creating is what I think is too low a view of marriage. And so my guess is there's some people in this room who might be tempted to kind of think that way, like marriage is just this biological thing, there's nothing spiritual or even big picture meaningful going on here, but I think I think a lot of the world, especially a lot of non-Christians, end up thinking this uh, is kind of where marriage comes from. Like over our, our sociological evolutionary development eventually led to marriage. And this creates too low of marriage because it's something we made up and something that we can redefine whenever we feel like it. The next story is the American dream story. And I'm kind of using this one as kind of a catch-all term for a whole lot of things. And I think that a lot of people in this room, myself included, if we're tempted to believe a false story of marriage, it's this one. And so in this view of marriage, um, there's kind of like this subconscious view of success that we have. And marriage helps us accomplish that vision of the good life. And so marriage is a rite of passage in this view. It's a rite of passage that grants entrance into a different social club, tax bracket, or temple status. And so in this view, marriage is kind of like, I have this subconscious view that like what, I, what the good life is, and that's having 2.8 kids living in the suburbs and retiring at 55, you know? And so if you have 2.8 kids, please stop calling when your kid's 0.8 and, and <laughs> say they're a full kid. Um, but it's, and it's not wrong to want to have three kids, but if that's your vision of the good life, and then you go like, you know what I need to get that? In order to accomplish that, I need a wife. So then all of a sudden, this wife becomes this asset in me accomplishing my vision of life. And so rather than just being the shoulder to shoulder, I end up using my wife to help me accomplish this. Similarly, a whole lot of religions, not biblical Orthodox Christianity, um, a whole lot of these religions, your singleness or your marital status affects your status or your rank in temple or in heaven eventually, such that some religions teach that singleness is better and that if you get married, it's because you're weak and can't control your flesh and that what's really holy is just being single your whole life and never getting married. And so there's like this 
elevation of single people over married people. And a lot of religions, similarly, on the contrast, have this elevation of married people over single people. And it says, you can't get into this level of temple, you can't get into this level of heaven, you can't get this many rewards in heaven unless you're doing this with your wives. And so, some religions teach that married people are better and more valuable than single people, and some religions teach that single people are ma- better or more valuable than married people, but in biblical Christianity, whether you're single or married, has no bearing on any type of church hierarchy or eternal rewards or anything like that. If anything, the church can look back in history and see heroes of our faith who were single and heroes of our faith who were married. And so in this type of contractual view, um, what we see is that marriage becomes this contract, meaning it's kind of like this economic exchange, like it's this mutually benefiting exchange of goods and services that when the goods and services go away, the contract ends. So like I have a contract with um, a plumber, hypothetically, they come to my house, I trade them goods and services, cash, and they give me goods and services fixing my plumbing, and then when our task is done, we're, we're toasted, I don't talk to them anymore. And so this type of contractual relationship a lot of times is what led to um, really high divorce rates, and it's that I'm lonely, you're a person, we can mutually benefit each other, and until I feel like those things don't go away, once I feel like you stop offering me the goods and services that were promised to me, I can end this contract and move on. And what ultimately happens here, though, in this American Dream story is that this creates too high a view of marriage because in order for me to have that good life, in order for me to be perceived as a successful person, I need to have a spouse. And so spouse ends up coming into my life as this messianic savior figure who helps deliver me into the promised land. And so what we see is that there's some stories that create this too low of marriage and some stories that create this too high of marriage. And what I see in the biblical story is that the scriptures simultaneously lower and raise the bar on marriage. It raises it because it's significant. God made it up. It's a picture of the gospel, but it's lower because your spouse is not a savior. And so a lot of times people get really let down when they find out that their spouse still sins and isn't Jesus. And... That is, it is a letdown sometimes. You want to never be sinned against. But if, my, if I expect my wife to be my savior, she's going to blow it every time and I'm going to be frustrated with her all the time. One thing about this is I remember when I was in high school, um, this was totally the view that I had and I viewed that like if I want to be a successful man of God, I need to have a girlfriend and get a wife. And that was kind of like my, my view, which is a really great way to approach dating. You know? <laughs> yeah. Hi, I want to be a successful man of God. Can you be my wife? So it was... Hardly romance or dating. Um, But I remember at one point, um, I was dating uh, my wife, and she broke up with me because I was a huge jerk. Not to her, but just in general. I was just a huge jerk, and I deserved it. And I knew she was going to break up with me because um, she went to this Bible study of a bunch of girls, and all those girls had been telling her to break up with me for a long time. I knew they were going to coach her into it and convince me to come (laughs) break up with me. And I was just so devastated. And I'm going to tell you this story because if I don't, then she will, and it would be worse if she tells it. Is... (laughs) She texts me, I'm coming over, and I know she's going to come break up with me. And I went and laid down on the driveway like this. You know, like I'm like 17, my world is collapsing, and the world is ending. And, and, and she still likes telling the story and making fun of me and saying like, loser, you know. And so, so anyway, we ended up getting back together, and now we're married, and that's fine. But she broke up with me, and I was devastated because my savior let me down and um, I was and so Christians when we're placing our hope in Jesus we can be disappointed but we can't be devastated Um, so then 
when it comes to the biblical story of marriage, um, there's this quote from Kathy Keller that I'm gonna keep referencing as we go. Um, Kathy says this, if we discover and embrace Jesus' definitions, we find ourselves entering into the mystery of the dance of the Trinity as well as enacting the mystery of the gospel. And so this biblical vision of marriage, this story of marriage, is both going to shine light on the Trinity and it's going to shine light on the gospel. And so from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, the story of marriage is painted, and it begins in Genesis chapter one. And here's what kind of happens in Genesis chapter one. God creates. In the beginning, God creates. But what's happening also is while he's creating, he's distinguishing and separating. If you read it, you can kind of see that God separates the light from the darkness. God pulls back the water from the land. And so what you end up seeing here is you have to see seven or more pairs of different things that God is creating, but while he's creating, he's simultaneously making distinctions. So the first one, he creates heaven and earth, light and darkness, sky and water, land and sea, small plants and big plants, day and night, sun and moon, birds and fish, wild animals, and domesticated animals. And so you kind of get this picture of these correlating others that line up across the aisle from each other, and that's kind of what the language is actually inferring, is it's saying, this goes with this, this goes with this, and you kind of get this picture of like um, rice and beans, peanut butter and jelly, bacon and eggs, bacon and everything, you know? So, so you, like there's all this like, that God has made the world complementary, meaning these things that are similar but nonetheless different go together. And so kind of the way the narrative works in scripture is God's painting this picture of these things that go together and then he gets to man and you get this gap because he makes man, he makes Adam and there's a gap. And so in Genesis 2, God says this. He says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so that fit is, could also be translated corresponding or across from or the opposite of. So literally across the aisle. So the wedding ceremony itself is reenacting this, that there's this man and there was nothing, but then here comes this woman and now she's across from him, corresponding to him, fit for him. And so just as God creates the world and it's complementary and it fits together and it connects, man without his woman is lacking his corresponding other. And this word helper here should not be understood pejoratively or negatively, but rather we should see it in the context of the whole scripture in which the Holy Spirit and God of the Father himself is called a helper who leads, guides, corrects, challenges, um, enables in many different ways. And so God gives man, woman, not to rule over him and not to be ruled by him, but rather to rule with him as his helper. Then in the next Verse I got here, Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That word hold fast there in the King James is cleave or can be changed cling to, but it's also used in the ancient uh, uh, writings to have to do with metal that's being welded together. So there once two pieces of metal, now there's one piece of metal. It molds together. You can't see where one starts and where one ends. And even then that one flesh piece there, while it's explicitly talking about the marital act and the two coming together to be one, what it's also talking about there is it's referencing the whole union of a whole person. That these two people would leave their household, start a new household, and there'd be this union of them economically, socially, politically, spiritually, relationally, and physically. And so this is why in the very beginning in this passage we see this picture painted of the two coming together and giving all of themselves to each other. In contrast with what happens now is a lot of people give part of themselves to each other and withhold some for later. 
Whereas we see marriage as this perfect, good union of two people coming together, giving themselves fully and wholly to one another in every sense of the word. And this next passage here, Genesis 1, says so, so kind of here, Genesis 1 gives you like the big overview, and Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of humanity. And so Genesis 1 tells us this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so this is what Kathy Keller was talking about when she said if we embrace Jesus' definitions, we are enacting and being a picture of the dance of the Trinity. God is Trinity. He is one God who's eternally manifest himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them are equally God, but they're all different in their roles in that the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Similarly, this distinction between male and female can be messed up in a variety of directions in the same way we can mess up the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, we can say, we can overemphasize on one side, we can overemphasize the way in which males and females are different. And this can lead to sexism and hierarchalism and misogyny and different problems in which women are viewed as less than men. That's evil and it's unbiblical. Likewise, we can go on this other side and totally de-emphasize any of the distinction between male and female and you kind of have this androgynous male and female is not really a thing, we just made it up. And so we have to live in this tension as humanity of that male and female are simultaneously the same and simultaneously different, just as Father, Son, and Spirit are all simultaneously God but are different in their person roles within the Trinity. And so that's a tension they have to keep balancing. But one kind of point here is that relation to the rest of the animal kingdom, male and female are way more alike than they are different. And so this male-female working together, their helpers working together. And so this next verse, I don't have it on the screen, so just in case it puts it up there. The next passage, what it literally says is, and they shall have dominion. So they're called, there's two, two parts of the calling of the man and the woman. Part one is be fruitful and multiply, and part two is subdue and have dominion. And so the couple together have a shared vocation. And so a lot of times we tend to think of marriage as uh, like we kind of can watch these romantic comedy films, and it's like the two people staring at each other's eyes, and everything fades away, and it's just me and you, nobody else, us against the world, baby, that type of thinking. And that kind of face-to-face relationship, but in reality what God's setting up here is a shoulder-to-shoulder partnership. They have a shared vocation that they shall have dominion and subdue the world, that they are called to be more shoulder to shoulder than they're called to be face to face. And this me and you and nobody else, us against the world, tends to create these inward focused marriages that don't really, people faithfully walk into the mission of God or walk into the the rearing of children and such. And this fruitful and multiply piece also talks about most explicitly about the procreative act, the having children and things like that. Even nowadays, post Jesus, we can live into those types of things by engaging in foster care and adoption, by even I think teachers embrace some of this when they nurture and raise children who have been um, in many ways not parented by their own parents. And so this twofold piece, this shared vocation and this raising of children is the original intention of marriage. And so married couples should look at themselves as partners in a shared vocation, not just people who withdraw from society and spend the rest of their lives staring at each other's eyes all by themselves. And so God creates marriage, and it's good, and there's male and female, it's a picture of the Trinity, they're partners, and everything is good, um, but then they fail. Um, and so in Genesis three sixteen, this happens. So Adam and Eve sin, they rebel, they choose to decide right and wrong for themselves, instead of allowing God to decide what's right and wrong, they eat of the fruit, and 
brokenness happens, and then God lists out a long list of the results of sin. And this one explicitly names one of the results of sin is marital conflict. So Genesis 3.16 says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is God speaking to Eve. And so that contrary to piece, um, if you have an ESV or different Bible apps, they actually just changed this, they updated this translation in September. So most of your Bibles probably say your desire shall be for your husband, for your husband, and so that word for there is a, is a really hard to translate word in Hebrew, and part of the w- reason we do that and we update it as we go is that as we learn more about Hebrew in the ancient Near East, we gain a better and more concrete understanding of how the language works, and so this is probably the, in my understanding, the best and freshest translation of the Hebrew in Genesis 3, and so you have this woman who's working against her husband and this husband who's ruling over her, and so controlling and manipulative wives and domineering abusive husbands are the direct result of the fall. And so um, because men tend to be more biologically stronger and have more testosterone, there's this rulerness there and the woman being contrary, working against the wills of those things. And so what once were united, now they're in conflict. And um, this is the direct result of the fall and it's absolutely difficult and it's really hard. And I'm pretty sure that there's at least a number of people in this room who when you found out that we're doing a marriage series, you said, well, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Because your marriage is hard. There is challenges. The honeymoon is over. And it's been over for a little while. And you're probably nervous you're going to come and hear this rosy, um, unrealistic picture of eternal honeymoons and you're going, I don't need any of this non-realism in my life. Our marriage is really hard. And the Bible paints no such falsely optimistic picture of marriage. And it knows and understands full well the difficulties that come. And I hope that you're at least encouraged by the fact that the Bible teaches us that marital conflict isn't the result of your insanity, <laughs> but the result of our collective brokenness. Sin enters the world, marriages get hard. Um, God, though, in his faithfulness, says, I have a plan. I'm going to fix it. The world is broken. There's difficulty. There's tension. Marital conflict is just one of the many problems. Um, I'm going to do, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to make a way. So what God does is he draws a people to himself and he calls them Israel, and he says, I'm gonna bless you, and you'll be a blessing, and you'll be a light to the nations. And so whereas Adam and Eve failed to live under my reign and rule, you are going to succeed in living in my reign and rule, and you're gonna show the world what it's like to live under my good and gracious reign. And so God actually takes the marriage of Adam and Eve and uses it as an analogy for his relationship to his people, such that even in Isaiah 62, which is the Old Testament, Isaiah says this, but you shall be called This is God talking to Israel. You shall be called, my delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so God's taking the best of marriage and saying, just as the way that Adam first looked at Eve, that's how I look at you, my people. And here's a question for you guys, is do you really feel and experience and believe that God delights in you. Because that's something that honestly makes me feel weird and uncomfortable. (laughs) 
part of it's because I'm like accidentally bought into all these false views of masculinity and being non-emotional and blah, blah, blah. Um, when I was 17, I was a music leader and there's a song that was playing on the radio called um, Divine Romance. It was all about um, God's romance of us and how he loves us. And my youth pastor was like, hey, Seth, I'm 17 in high school. And he goes, hey, can you play this song? I think it'd be really great. And I said, no, that song's stupid. Jesus is not your boyfriend. <laughs> Which is an insight into me when I was 17, my respect for authority and things like that. But, but also, like, that, like now looking back on that, like that reveals a severe deficiency in my understanding of God's love for me. That if I think that God is Lord, but maybe kind of father and certainly not spouse. Whereas the primary metaphor in scripture of God's love for us is that he's the groom and we're the bride. His delight is in us, and I hope each one of you recognize and feel that God delights in you, both us corporately and you individually. That his eyes for you are like the bride looking down at the groom as she walks down the aisle, and that never falters, it never goes away, regardless of what we do. So God takes the best part of marriage and he uses it as a metaphor for him and his people and that is riddled throughout the Old Testament. And if you read it, you won't be able to miss it. But then what happens is those people fail too. And so this next passage is actually a translation that I did myself and here's why. It's because Ezekiel 16 is absolutely graphic. Um, if you wanna get a sense for God's heart for his people when they're unfaithful and you wanna get the graphic of it. The ESV's got a great PG-13 translation for you. This next verse is my own PG translation of you, but you can probably get the sense behind it. So God's people go unfaithful, and here's what he says. You trusted in your beauty, which I gave you. I've given you so much. I blessed you. I brought you into a relationship. I've given you grace. I gave you pearls. I gave you a house. I gave you jewelry. You trusted in your beauty, which I gave you, and sold yourself to men because of your fame. You engaged in unfaithfulness with anyone who walked by. You gave up your beauty to them. And this becomes a theme in the Old Testament as well. Both God's absolute love and delight for his people and their adultery. Such that what this is showing to us is that we need to re-understand sin in our lives. A lot of times I think of my own sin as like accidentally sometimes doing things wrong. But the biblical picture of sin is not that it's just doing bad things, but it's getting into bed with the wrong person. It's infidelity. And for that reason, um, a lot of you have experienced this. You've walked in it, or someone walked in it to you. You've had unfaithful spouses. Maybe your parents were unfaithful to one another, and now you're left kind of picking up the pieces. And God's heart for his people is so great that God is a broken-hearted God. And you who have been maligned and mistreated and left behind and abandoned and deserted, and if you had an unfaithful spouse, you understand something about God's heart that other people don't. Because you felt it, you've walked in it, you've experienced it. The simultaneous sadness and anger that how could you do this to me and also how dare you put your hands on my wife And so you who have been through this, you sharing your story helps the rest of us understand God's heart at our own sin, that he's simultaneously sad and enraged. 
And because of this, John Edwards said this. John says, um, a truly Christian love is a humble, brokenhearted love. It's not rainbows and shooting stars and fairy tales, but there's a realness to it, a we've been there and we've come back, and it's those decisions of faithfulness made when the temptation is there to do otherwise that really craft that humble love, that there but by the grace of God go I, and there's no way I can take credit. So God creates Adam and Eve, they have a good marriage, it fails. God has a marriage to his people, it fails. Um, even to the point where the way in which Jesus is betrayed is with a kiss. God knows what it's like to be in a bad marriage. <laughs> Surely he does. So what's God's response to this? Ezekiel 16 says this. This is right after the prophet is indicting the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness. Ezekiel says this, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will atone for all that you've done, declares the Lord. That Jesus is this true and greater husband who takes responsibility for the sins. Rather than Adam who blamed Eve, Jesus takes responsibility for his wife. And he promises redemption, he promises atonement and says, I will pursue them. In the book of Hosea, what he literally says is, I will allure her again taking her to the place where we first met. This is how God pursues us. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. It's this love story that he invites us into. It's a relationship that he's beckoning us with. This marriage of Christ and the bride, ultimately leading to Ephesians chapter five. We can go into the next thing. So Adam's unfaithful. God makes a promise to heal it. Israel's unfaithful. God makes a promise to heal it. Jesus comes the sacrificial, suffering servant who offers himself on the altar for the sake of his bride. And Ephesians 5 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is after Jesus, Paul's writing this. This mystery is profound. The word profound there in the original Greek is actually the word mega. <laughs> this is a mega mystery. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. And so how is it that a man and woman are one flesh? That doesn't make sense. That's complicated. What does that mean? Paul's saying that's a mystery, that the two become one. Just as this Christ in the church mystery is a thing. And so our visible human marriages are references to the marriage of Christ in the church. I used to think for a long time that the marriage of Christ in the church helps me think about my marriage. But reality, what Paul's saying here is that our physical marriages, me and my wife, is the sign of the reality which is the marriage of Christ in the church such that the real marriage is my marriage to Christ and my physical marriage with me and my wife is just a picture of that. The sign is my marriage, the reality is the eternal marriage of Christ and the Son, Christ the Son and the Bride. And so what you see here is that marriage, our marriages become part of what Kathy Keller said in the very beginning, enacting the mystery of the gospel. That as husbands serve their wives and wives respond to that serving of their husbands, people should be able to look at our marriages and see a picture of the gospel. Going on, Ephesians says this, Ephesians 5 says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. So Jesus didn't die for no reason, but he died so that his wife could flourish and have life. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So the role of husbands here is we should be able to look at husbands and see a picture of the sacrificial suffering servant. God takes on flesh, doesn't use his unity with God, but rather becomes and takes the form of a servant. And he does that and he cherishes and nourishes the church. And if there's one thing I want us to understand here, it's the role of husbands is those two words, nourish and cherish. To serve at a cost to yourself, to lay your life down so that you can help your wife flourish. Nourish and cherish. And so if husbands, if you want one homework assignment this week, it's go home and ask your wife and say, how could I nourish and cherish you better? She'll probably have something. <laughs> Mine would, so. <laughs> Next, the role of wives. Ephesians 5, 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I asked my wife this week, when you hear the word submit, what comes to mind? And she went, ugh. <laughs> Which is probably a fair reaction because so many people abuse that because so here's kind of what I want us to do think about this word submit in Christianity and only in Trinitarian Orthodox Christianity does love come before power in every other worldview power comes before love here's what I mean by this is in other worldviews there's one God by himself who creates something he can't be loving yet because he has nothing yet to love So his power is utilized, and then he has an object to love. Or there's a big bang, so power happens. You know, the evolutionary story, there's a big bang, an explosion of power, and then there's all these things that can love one another. But in Trinitarian Christianity, there is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this eternal loving relationship with one another. And then out of that love, they use their power to create. Similarly, Jesus turns our vision of authority and headship on its head turns it upside down. When the most high-ranking man in the room gets on his hands and feet and washes the feet of his disciples. When the one who is innocent becomes guilty in order to serve. When the one who deserved all fame and glory said, not you, not my will, but yours, Father. And so if we see this submit to your own husbands and we do so in the context of living in a world in which her desire shall be contrary to her husband and he will rule over her, and sinful people trying to appropriate this in a way, it's going to cause problems. But if we understand it in the context of what it means to be for husbands to deny themselves to serve their wives, this submission becomes less of a problem. Um, Kathy Keller has a quote on this. She says, the father and the son are ontological equals. The word ontology means being or the study of what is or the study of reality. So in reality, in the very nature of their being, the father and the son are equals. They're both equal in their godness. But economically, they embrace different roles. So the father and son are economically functioning in different capacities. The son does son things, the father does father things, even though they're simultaneously equal in their godness. Next slide. So also the husband and wife are ontologically equal. This is what I talked about earlier, that they are equal in their humanity. In reality, man and wife are equal in their humanity and there should be no 
argument otherwise, but economically embrace different roles, so they function slightly differently. And so this isn't talking about how men are a certain way and women are a certain way, and it's not women should do this because you know women and men should do this because you know men, but rather it's saying they embrace different roles as means of metaphor that points beyond their marriage, such that the marriage, there is role playing involved that the husband enacts the suffering servant of Jesus and the wife enacts the faithful, responsive bride of Christ. So when we look at our marriages, we should be able to see, like husbands, ask yourself, if someone looked at your marriage, who's the suffering servant? Who's the one putting his needs second so that someone else's needs can go first? Wives, are you a model that if we looked at you Could that be a picture of the church? That's how we should be responding to Christ's leadership. And this is messy, and I know it's hard difficult, and to the point at which next week Luke is talking about this for most of the sermon. What does it mean for us to mutually submit to one another, and what does this even really look like? And so you can ask Luke all the hard questions about that next week. So God creates Adam and Eve, their marriage fails. God has a marriage to Israel, that marriage fails. Jesus comes as the true and greater husband who with success purchases his bride, pays it all, secures their union, and then in the end we look forward to this final marriage. Revelation 19 says this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. So this has yet to happen. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what Advent is all about. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this looking forward to the end is literally we're reenacting the marriage ceremony where the bride comes down the aisle and the groom is waiting for her and the father gives the bride to the son. And so you can't have a low view of marriage if you have a high view of scriptures because from the last page, from the first page to the last page, God is weaving this great love story. Even to the point where the book Song of Songs in the Old Testament, Song of Songs, which means the greatest song ever written, that there's not a love story on the planet that holds a candle to the love story of God and his church. And that our marriages are a visible picture of that eternal marriage such that our vows are even like this. Let's look at our vows. Husband and wife, across from each other, on their wedding day, at least when I do the wedding, they say this. From this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others, till death do us part. And this blew my mind this week, is that every single person who's married that I know of said that last line with a smile on their face, till death do us part. That's a terrible thing to say, (laughs) like that's, every single marriage, every marriage, I believe, ends in tears. Someone is burying someone. It's temporary, it's a picture, it's a shared calling for right now. But what we have to look forward to is this true and greater marriage that is not till death do us part, but instead it's forever and always. And these would be the marriage vows of Christ and the church. The same, but at the end, forever and always. That the honeymoon ends in our physical marriages, 
But when we die and Christ returns, we'll enter into a honeymoon that never ends. Let me pray and we're going to respond to singing.